And so on this Lord's Day, Christmas Sunday, 2022, as I mentioned previously, we are stepping away from our study in the book of Revelation to focus on the theme of Advent, of Christmas. And you know, when you come to a subject like that, it is rather vast. There are many things that could be taught from the pulpit or in a message or in Sunday school regarding the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But I am focusing on the words in Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 to 10 as an example of what was previously said by the prophet concerning the coming of the Messiah, his coming in his kingdom in Isaiah 9, 6, that he would be, among other things, the prince of peace. That reminds me that from the dawn of humanity, from the days of Cain and Abel right down to today, human beings are too often not at peace, but are at odds with each other. And too often that results in the wreckage of families and friendships and churches and businesses and even whole nations. But today's words from the prophet Isaiah are some of the most beautiful words I think ever written concerning humanity's longing for peace. Listen to these selected verses from Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. I'm reading from the ESV translation. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters covers the sea. Dr. Kerry North, thankfully by God's grace before his going home to glory a few years ago, uh, finished his magisterial economic commentary on the whole Bible. And it's available for free, by the way, for anybody who wants to read it online or, I think, get the PDF versions. But (coughs) concerning this prophecy, (coughs) Dr. North wrote these words. The prophecy was messianic. It pointed to Jesus Christ, who will serve as judge. The context of the prophecy was civil justice. This means the content was God's law. To argue otherwise is to argue that the prophets were calling upon Israel to worship other gods by adopting a new law order. Let me just add parenthetically that the point is, wherever there's a change in law order, that is, there's a change in the source of what is law, there's a change in the God. He continues, so the prophets believed that justice will eventually be enforced in history by the Messiah. Their concept of justice was grounded in biblical law. Not Greek, not Roman, not medieval Renaissance or Enlightenment, but in biblical law, in the quote. So in that context, we read that Isaiah says that when the Messiah comes, all people will live in peace and dignity and love together. This is where the world is headed. Let me say that again. Now that the Christ has come and as predicted and forecast by the prophets, All people will live in peace and dignity and love together. 
This is where the world is headed. Does that seem hard, if not impossible, to believe? Well, let me assure you, it was no less hard to believe in Isaiah's day than it is ours. And it certainly was no less uh, hard to believe in the days of the early Christian church who were beset upon all sides by persecution and savagery. A few years ago, there was a, a popular computer video game that a lot of young people played. I never played it. I certainly heard about it. But it was called Beachhead. It was a realistic war game video about an invading army. And they're landing on a beach to overtake an opposing army. This is what God did with the birth and life and ascension of Christ Jesus. A beachhead has been established in this fallen world. The seed of the kingdom and of peace and love have been planted. The sovereign divine power of God's love and justice will be and is being victorious. It will overcome all the anger and hostility and hatred that reside in humanity. Across the earth, the Lord's people will live in peace together. That is Isaiah's message today. Now, I suppose I could just say, thank you very much. God bless. Let's go home and open our Christmas presents. But of course, there's more to it than that. I think it's a fact that, continuing on this theme, for more than a few generations, American people have been taught to glorify war. Now, I could go into a lot of detail about that, but I'm only going to say this much. War is a terrible thing. And in spite of all the glorification and, you know, war hero movies and all the rest of it, anybody who has been in live combat, if they'll be honest with you, and most of them will, they will tell you and they will testify to the fact that there's nothing glorified about war. It is terrible. It is awful. I came across a report that some scientists and historians from Norway, England, Egypt, Germany, and a few other places came up with some startling information, according to their calculations. Since the year 3600 B.C., the world has known only about 300 years of peace. And during that period, there had been roughly 14,375 wars, both large and small. And in those wars, over 3.6 billion people have been killed. The value of the property destroyed in these wars would pay for enough gold to stretch right across the earth, 97.2 miles wide and 33 feet deep. I don't, I don't know where they get these comparisons, but the idea is that uh, a lot of property has been destroyed in war since 3600 B.C. They said six, since 650 B.C., there had been what we would call in the modern parlance 1656 arms races, you know, where countries and villages and nations are arming each other arming themselves to fight. And they said only 16 of those did not end in war, and the remainder of them that didn't ended in economic collapse of the countries involved. Back in 1983, a movie was released to the theaters called War Games. And in that movie, there's some kids that hack into a government computer, and in doing so, they set off a simulated thermonuclear war with the Soviet Union and it actually moves within inches of becoming a real hot nuclear war. And panicking and realizing that the computer doesn't know the difference and is moving toward launching nuclear, a nuclear strike, one of the teenagers enlists the help of a physicist to try to beat the computer and stop the game and, and end this great war threat. And in a final move, 
they, they basically begged the computer, how do we win this war? And the computer's answer to that question is the title of my message to you today. The only way to win is not to play the game. You know, it strikes me, this is true in terms of personal conflicts and relationships. It's true in terms of relations between nations at war. And you know, maybe it's my imagination, but I think that with the advent of a media that intentionally promotes bad news and pessimism, that one result of this is that human relationships have, even in the church, become more warlike. I heard about an elderly man with some, walking along. He sees some six- and seven-year-old children playing outside, and he stopped, and he said, Hey, what are you kids playing? War, responded one of the boys. Well, why don't you play peace instead, the old man said. Well, the children stopped dead in their tracks, and they looked at each other puzzled, and one of them said, well, Grandpa, how do we play peace? We don't even know that game. Is that surprising? Why, why doesn't anybody know that game anymore? You know, for many people in our communities, from morning to night, seven days a week, they choose to expose their eyes and minds and souls to nonstop violence and savagery and cruelty and personal viciousness through popular media and entertainment. Those things assault us from all sides of our culture. You know, we're not the first to have had that problem. I mean, ours is more technocratic. But back in the days of ancient Rome, that was true as well. There's a story that comes down to us from the early church. One of the church fathers told this story about a monk named Telemachus. He lived in the 300s, A.D. 300s, the 4th century. And he was cloistered in a monastery, but he felt God calling him to go to Rome. And so he did. He set out for Rome. And when he arrived in the city, people were thronging the streets. And he asked, why all this excitement? And he was told that it was the day of the gladiatorial games, fighting in the Colosseum. And he thought to himself, it's been 400 years after our Lord Jesus Christ has died and gone to heaven and these people are still killing each other for enjoyment? And so he ran into the Colosseum, and he saw the gladiators standing in the center with the uh, Roman salute, Hail Caesar, we who are about to die salute you. And, and he jumped over the railing, and he ran out into the middle of the great arena, and he said, in the name of Christ, stop this. Everybody was stunned. Roughly 80,000 people in the Colosseum. Finally, they began, many of them, shouting the people in the stands and protesting, kill him, kill him. One of the gladiators, who was a giant standing next to this diminutive monk, took out his sword and hit him across the stomach with it, knocking him back off his feet. The monk got up and he went back right to where he was and he said again, in the name of Christ, stop this. And the crowd continued to shout for his death. Finally, the other gladiator walked over and plunged his sword deep into the man's stomach and killed him. But with his last dying breath, Telemachus gasped, in the name of Christ, stop. A hush came over that crowd of 80,000 people. And soon, one man got up and left. And then another followed, and another, and then finally at a certain point, almost the entire Colosseum had been emptied. Telemachus died in the year A.D. 391. 
That was the last known gladiatorial contest in the history of Rome. Friends, let me suggest that our problem today on this Christmas Sunday is that too many Christians are filling the seats, quote-unquote, of the coliseums of our violent culture. And too many Christians are unwilling to give up their bad attitudes to follow the example of that one Roman, that one man who got up and walked out on the violence. You know, it's been my experience as a pastor for 30 years. Maybe some of you would testify to this as well. Maybe, including ourselves, I fully admit my own culpability in this. But some folks, they get up on Sunday morning and they come to church and they are ready for battle. They're already upset about something. Maybe some of us this Advent season should ask ourselves, is the way that I have acted toward that other person at work, in my home, or at church, is it any different than if I had not been a Christian? You know that every Christmas season, between five to ten people are killed or injured in Guatemala City by, by this, now get this, by falling bullets. Each December, police beg partygoers not to fire pistols into the air to celebrate. And the police say lots of people die when the bullets fall on their heads. This tradition of shooting in the air is a very dangerous practice, they said. How many people in church or at some event or at home have been killed by the falling bullets that have been fired off in anger. And I mean the bullets of attitudes and words. Friends, it has always been the hope of Christians that when Jesus came, that when the kingdom dawned, it would herald the dawning of an age of real peace. Peace between God and humanity, between human beings and being at peace within ourselves. There was an extensive survey that was conducted here in the United States by some leading polling agency or other, and questionnaires were distributed to people of various ages and occupations, and the key question was this, what are you most looking for in life? Now, when the results were compiled, the analysts were quite surprised because most of them had expected answers that would suggest, you know, materialistic goals. But the main things those people wanted in life were love and peace. Isn't it interesting that there are things like that that are the first results of the coming of Jesus into the world? Love and peace. The peace of God. That is something the world cannot give us. Our modern technocratic society offers us phony answers to our cries for peace and harmony. The world in which we live tells us that to, to do the opposite of what God's law word tells us. It tells us that in order for you to know peace, you've got to either go somewhere or buy something or take some pills. But the peace that God offers is different from the world's peace. Jesus said, now we read this earlier in our New Testament reading. I want to read it to you again from the New Jerusalem Bible. There's several more recent translations that I think have gotten this a little bit more accurately. Jesus says, my peace I bequeath to you. My own peace I give you, a peace which the world cannot give. This is my gift to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. The wording of the Greek text there indicates that he's giving a gift. Uh, he's bequeathing something. The world's fake peace is temporary. It is external. And the peace that Christ offers is different 
from the counterfeit peace of this world. It's different because it adds something to life rather than subtract something from it. You know, we usually think of peace as the absence of conflict, the absence of stress or worry. And it is those things. But the peace that Jesus refers to here is the biblical concept of peace based on the, the, the Hebrew term shalom, uh, in Arabic salem, and in Greek irene. The type of peace that is not just the absence of anxiety, but it includes the presence of blessing and prosperity. The late Dr. R.C. Sproul, some years ago, wrote about this topic. He said the peace of Christ was and is, and and I think he's keying off the, the translation here. He said the peace of Christ was and is his legacy to all who follow him. I'm going to quote him here. He said the peace that Christ gave his disciples was far more valuable than the richest earthly inheritance. Why? We find the answer, he said, when we read about the great drama of the gospel and our justification by faith alone. After Paul expands on these truths in his epistle to the Romans, he proclaims, So then, now we have been justified by faith. We are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. Dr. Sproul went on to say, I do not believe there could be a greater legacy from Christ than his peace. And not a peace such as the world gives, he wrote. A fragile truce that can be ended at any moment by new acts of hostility. And an eternal peace that can never be disrupted, end quote. My friends, in concluding this message, let us not even start the game of conflict and hatred and disagreement. Let us recognize our inheritance in Christ Jesus. And I'll say even today, our Christmas gift, hopefully without demeaning the gift of Christ's peace to us. Let us pray.